Good morning. Let's read again 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Lord, Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, we name You this morning as our Savior and our God. We speak Your name this morning in song and in prayer, in the reading of Your Word, in conversation, even in fellowship. Lord, we speak Your name because Your name is our hope. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that You will open our hearts and our minds to Your name this morning. I pray, Father, that in all the words we won't get lost, but we will be found. And we ask, Lord Jesus, simply that You will bless us with perhaps the revelation of what Your servant John was writing. And that we might take this and it would become our great hope. Holy Spirit, come teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, he first came into view by the name Teddy Bear. In the British magazine Punch... Back in 1924, the next time he appeared was in 1925 in the Christmas Eve edition of the London Evening News and he had a name at that time, Pooh. The next year he got his own book and a full name, Winnie the Pooh, and the year after that he was featured in a volume of children's poems, Now We Are Six. And finally in 1928, he was featured in The House at Pooh Corner. During long walks with his son, Christopher Robin, in the 500-acre wood of Ashdown Forest, which is in Sussex County, about 30 miles south of London, Alan Alexander Milne began to make up stories about the silly old bear and his friends Piglet, Eeyore, Kanga, Roo, Tigger. These five specifically were his son's stuffed toys, named by his son, and he just borrowed these creatures for characters in the stories. And the stories went on, as you know, to capture the hearts of generations since. Even before Disney got hold of them, 1966, Winnie the Pooh has meant a lot to a lot of people. The stories, heartwarming, encouraging, cheering, fun, lighthearted. 70,000 words in four short children's books, that's all. And they eclipsed everything else A.A. Milne ever did or wrote. He was a playwright. He was a poet. He was an author, a novelist. He wanted to be known for so much more. And yet when you say the name A.A. Milne today, if you know the name, it's because of Winnie the Pooh. He stopped, after the House of Pooh Corner, he stopped writing any children's stories, especially stories with the name Pooh in them. He wouldn't go there. Part of the reason was he felt amazement and disgust 
over the unintended celebrity that was forced upon his son. Quote, the legal Christopher Robin, he said, has already had more publicity than I want for him. I do not want C.R. Milne to ever wish that his name were instead Charles Roberts. Growing up is hard to do. Milne could not protect the innocence of his child forever. No parent can. And while Winnie the Pooh remains that fixture of childhood to so many people and in so many minds, even today, he's fictional. You know, he's ink on paper. He's sustained in literature and film, will be for a time. And don't you dare change him. He's one of those characters. I I went and saw uh, Christopher Robin recently, the, the movie that just came out. And I highly encourage it. It's rated PG. It really should have been rated G. It is the most wonderful movie I've seen in a long time. Really sweet. I was worried, though, going into it, that Winnie the Pooh, the character, which I saw previews, I knew at some point he and the other critters got into London, and I thought, no, no, you don't take Pooh out of the Hundred Acre Wood. You can't do that. You're messing with Winnie. You know, I love the movie. And they did a wonderful job protecting. But, but that's the thing. You can't change Winnie the Pooh. He is who he is. And if you try to alter him or change him, you upset things. Well, that's, that's fiction. You have to change. I have to change. We must grow up. We cannot remain the same. And growing up is hard to do. Perhaps that relentless reality of growing older, even growing old, is what makes the old apostle's words all the more surprising as he writes here in verse 2, Now we are children. Now we are children. It's that same word we saw last week, techna, or technia, little children. Now we are little children. Little children meant to be without celebrity, but in humility. Little children without publicity, but instead with simplicity. Little children without fame, but in the name of Jesus. Now we are children. John wrote in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. It's one of the many things... One of the many remarkable things that makes receiving Jesus so wonderful is He makes us young again. You follow Jesus, He revives wonder. He, he, he rekindles amazement. Spend five minutes with Spencer, you'll see that. <laughs> he restores trust. He restores trust, especially from the pains that tend to harden us as we come into adult life. The things that would damage our relationships, make trusting each other more difficult. Jesus restores trust so that we can have koinonia, we can be in fellowship with each other. Have you ever noticed kids can play with anyone? Take a child to a playground, and if there's another child on the playground, best friends in five minutes. And Jesus restores that kind of simple trust so that we can play together again. He makes us children. And He relays to us, on top of all this, His kingdom, but but He says, Mark 10.15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. 
That's interesting. He doesn't say whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. He says will not enter it. The truth is, if you don't come to the kingdom as a child, you're not going to enter. You won't go in. There is a will involved. Adults won't go into the kingdom. The self-made, the proud, they're not going to bend the knee. The independent doesn't see the need. The mature, the put-together, will walk right by the entrance to the kingdom, whereas the little child will go running in. That's how you enter the kingdom. Have you received Jesus? That's really the question at heart this morning. Have you received Him? Have you believed on His name? Like a child, not like an adult who's gathered all the facts and all the clarity and is sure about the next step. But like a child who knows He's there, knows He's real, and says, all right, Lord, I don't even know what this means, but I will follow You. It's really that simple. Now, someone might say, why should I? Three things to see in these three verses. First of all, let's talk about, number one, the love. The love, verse one. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. That is literally, behold what manner, what sort What kind of love the Father has given us. See, the translators here in the NSB, they add the word great. Great is not there. But it's implied. The sort of love. Oh, look at the manner of love. It's in the imperative as if John is saying, you just got to see this. Behold the love. Look at the kind of love this is. How great is this love? That's a good question. How great is this love? So great that God would add you, would add me to His family. So great that we would be called children of God. You read that, and all my life I've read that and I've thought right on the surface, what a precious privilege. That's a great love that God would add me to His family, would add anyone who believes to His family. That's a great love on a human level. But my friends, it is greater than that. It's greater than what we see on the surface. Let me share with you the the words of Alexander McLaren, the old Scottish preacher, who had this to say. If we are to translate with perfect accuracy, we must render it, this verse, not see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called, but we must translate it in order that we must be called. And that's a better translation. Not that we, we would be called. In order that we would be called the children of God. He goes on and says the meaning then is that the love bestowed is the means by which we become children of God. It's not just the example. Hey, we're children of God. That proves the love of God. No, the love is what makes us the children. The love is what does it. He's not saying our being His children shows us His great love. He's saying God's love makes us children. The love is the power. The love is the transformative uh, element that takes an old crusty heart and turns it into a young childlike heart. 
It is the love of God that works this. And McLaren goes on. He says, all this lavish bestowal of love, unspeakable as it is, may be regarded as having one great end, which God deems worthy of even such expenditure, namely, that we should become, in the deepest sense, His children. It is the love which, by its wonderful process, has made it possible for us to be children. John is not talking about a passive acceptance that God's a loving God, therefore we come along and He says, yeah, you can be my children. He's talking about an active influence that the love of God gets into the heart and begins to change it and alter it and soften it, ultimately to replace it and therefore make us children. He is actively doing it. It's the father running to the prodigal son. Luke 15.20 It's the blood running down the brow of Jesus. Luke 22.44 It's the Spirit rushing like a wind. Acts chapter 2 verse 2 You notice that on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit showed up? He didn't just blow in like a breeze. He came, there was the sound of a rushing wind, almost as though the Spirit of God could not wait to get in there and start doing what He does. It is the active influence of God. That is the love of God. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's like Piglet. If you've seen Winnie the Pooh in the blustery day, he just gets lifted right up off the ground and carried away and Pooh is dragged behind him holding on to the edge of a piece of yarn that used to be his scarf. They're just carried along by the wind. Where are they going? Well, Piglet would say, I guess I'll have to find out when I get there. And so is someone who's drawn by the Spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? That it is the work of God. The love of God is a powerful influence. And if we just say yes to it, He does the rest. He takes off. He begins to work in us. It is God making us His children. That's the manner of love we're talking about. That's how great the love of God. And John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That, in order that, we would be called children of God. And then he says, and we are. And we are. Kai esmen. In the Greek. Chiasmen. We are, he says. The singular form of that in the Greek is ego eimi. I am. I am. We are. He's not just saying this is kind of what has happened. It means this is now our existence. I am is what Jesus said. Before Abraham was born, I am, ego a me. Here John says, and we are, kai es men, we are, this is who we are now. Now we are children. This is the state of our being, our character, our very nature. This is who we are. And by the way, it's why John keeps calling them, calling us, little children. Throughout the whole letter. It's not, after all, just an affectionate term of endearment. It's not just the dotting old dotard, you know, the codger apostle saying, no, little children. No, John puts himself in the mix. And we are. He includes himself. We're little children. Why does he keep saying it? Because we are. 
This is now the condition of our being. Children of God. Children of God. That speaks of a radical transformation. You know what slows the transformation? Adulthood. When we hold God at bay, when we keep Him at arm's length, maybe you've led Him into your life just enough, but you don't want to be one of those crazies. You don't want to be known as one of those you know, ridiculous Christians. Man, that's all they talk about. Are you keeping God at arm's length? Now we are children. Children don't care. Back to the playground example. When they're on the top of the slide and they believe with all of their being that they are in the crow's nest of a pirate ship, they don't care if it looks foolish. And we don't care. Should we look foolish to the world? Okay. It's alright. We have been transformed now. Now we are children. Look down at verse 9. A little more serious view of this Now we are children. John says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him. That is, the seed of Christ abides in you. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Born of God, begotten is the word. Ganao. And we talked about this at length on Wednesday night. In fact, you might want to go back if you weren't here and listen to that part of the teaching. It is some of the most critical stuff in our faith in in helping us to understand how we deal with sin. That not only did Jesus break the penalty of sin, take the penalty of sin on the cross, but He broke the power of sin so that we don't have to sin. Oh, but Rick, what if we do? Well, if we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But we don't have to. Kids, listen up. If you are struggling with chronic sin, what we call midweek, lifestyle lawlessness. If you're into something and you just you know it's wrong, you know it's not of God, you know it is not righteous, but you just keep going there and you just keep doing it again and again and again, please understand that verse 9 is written to be taken literally. No one who is born of God practices sin. Well, so if I sin, does that mean I'm not born of God? No. If you practice sin, that raises the red flag. You don't practice sin. You practice righteousness. I used to practice the cello. I spent four years of my life playing the cello. And sometimes it sounded really good. And sometimes I'd hit a sour note. But I kept practicing until I could put it away and play the drums. (laughs) No one who practices sin is born of God. And this is to be taken literally. Here's the point for this morning. Children have no problem believing they can be good. Have you noticed that about kids? You tell them on the way out the door, you've got a babysitter there, you're leaving, and you say, now, be good. And the child fully believes that he or she will be good. You may know better. But they believe it. They accept it. I'm told to be good, therefore I'm just going to be good. Okay, Christians, practice righteousness. Jesus says, be good. Okay, alright, then that's what we're going to do. Expect to be good. See, the problem is we grow older, 
And we sin, and sin becomes a little more serious. And then we realize we have a sin nature. That's an eye-opener. And then we start to desire forgiveness, desire freedom from that sin nature. And ultimately, we begin to believe God for it. Yes, He'll take the penalty of my sin. Yes, I can start to believe perhaps that I will be saved because He's taken away the penalty. The problem is, and we talked about this Wednesday, is we stop short of believing in the power of the love of God shown in the blood work of Jesus Christ on the cross that crushed the power of sin. The power of God is bigger, greater. And once the power of sin is crushed, that influence is no longer in your life or in my life. I can say no to it. I now have the power of the love of God that I can pursue and practice righteousness, which is why the Bible says, Psalm 34, 14, depart from evil and do good. Just do good. Seek peace and pursue it. All of that is the powerful working of the love of God. Don't think of the love of God, again, as a passive thing. It is active. It is life-changing. His love is the power that influences and changes and alters us as children. Now we are children. That's the love. The second thing to note here, the world. The world. Continuing in verse 1, he says, For this reason... The world does not know us because it did not know Him. Hear the context. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us in order that we would be called children of God. And we are. We're children of God. For this reason, the world does not know us. Because it did not know Him. The world does not know us. He uses this word world 23 times in the letter. The word is, in the Greek, cosmos. The cosmos does not know us. Now, understand in that translation, the way we use cosmos, when you say something is cosmic, or you're talking about the cosmos, we're meaning the arrangement of the stars in the universe. The much larger created picture, the cosmos. The word cosmos in the Greek also has a very specific translation. And that translation depends on the context of how it's used. And we've talked about that many times. By the way, be careful with Greek words. I know I throw a lot of Greek words out when we study. But please understand when I share a Greek word with you and I give the meaning for it, it is always in the context of the verse that we're looking at or in the context of the passage. The reason that's so important is a lot of Bible teachers will get out there People will take verses, they'll find a Greek word, and they'll find all kinds of nuances that shoot off it in 500 directions and get so excited. And the reality is it really just means one thing. It means what it means in the context that it was given. So stick to the context. Let the word be the word. And the word for world here, cosmos, it literally means, John's usage of it means the unbelieving world. As in those opposed in humanity to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he means when he says the cosmos. The vast sum of humanity that rejects God or stands against Jesus or refuses the work of the Spirit. Look at verse uh, 15 of chapter 2. We read last week. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. He's not saying don't love creation. He's not saying don't go out and enjoy a nice walk in the woods or down by the beach or by a river. 
He's not saying, don't be amazed at the beauty of the sunset as you're crossing the Deception Pass Bridge and you're looking out over the water and the gold and the orange and the red is beautiful. Keep your eyes on the road, by the way, if you're driving. But he's not saying, don't love that. Like the old hymn goes, this is my Father's world. And all that He has created, I love this. But I do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Clearly, He's not talking about the created earth or the stars or the moon or the universe. He's talking about humanity in rebellion. And that's the cosmos. As John uses the word. And by the way, verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Look over in chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Now that doesn't mean you're walking along the beach down there in Deception Pass shores and you stub your toe on a rock and go, Man, this world hates me! It doesn't mean a a branch falls on your car and cracks your window and you're like, see, it's the hatred of the world. Now the world that hates you is people in rebellion. And why does the world hate you? Why don't people love you when they find out sometimes that you're a Christian or you're a follower of Jesus? He says, note this again. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Back in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. And we're not talking about know as be aware of, we're talking about the world doesn't get us. The world doesn't know you. Christians, followers of Jesus, the world looks at you and goes, I don't, I don't get them. It doesn't make sense. I, who do you think you are? Oh, you think you're better than us? No, actually I don't. What's up with you? You Christians, what's the deal with you? See, they didn't get Jesus either. And that's kind of the point. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Here comes the light. Here comes Jesus as a lamp shining in a dark place. Here comes the Lord and the, and the world, the cosmos, the rebellious heart looks at Jesus and goes... Who is He? What's up? John 1.10 tells us He was in the world. And the world was made through Him. That's not just the universe, but people were made through Him. And the world did not know Him. He came to His own, that is Israel, the Jewish people, and those who were His own did not receive Him. In other words, becoming children of God is not the career path to R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You're not going to get respect that way. Giving your life to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, is not how you get respect. Not from this world, just as He didn't. Just as He was disrespecting. In fact, that's what you can expect. Maybe a Christian song would be (laughs) D-I-S-R-E-S-P-E-C-T. But following Jesus is not the path to the respect of the world. Hmm. What's John trying to do here? I mean, we were doing so. I was flying high on the love. That sounded good. Even the becoming children, because I like the freedom in that. But all of a sudden, 
The world doesn't know us. Later on, the world hates us. What are you trying to do, John? Bum us out? That's not encouraging. All John's doing here is saying, heads up, kids. You will be misunderstood. You will be discounted. And yes, sometimes you will be hated. Jesus said in Matthew 10.24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. And then Jesus explains what he's saying. Look, if they have called the head of the house, Jesus himself, Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, children of God, it's going to become known who you are in Him. And it will be revealed what's really going on here and why the light is different than the darkness and why you are children and why you would choose to be that in the first place. That will be seen. But Jesus also said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. We follow a Savior once crucified. You follow Him, you may find yourself dragging along your own cross. In fact, I think that's what He said, isn't it? Take up your cross. And follow me. Well, so you might say, you had me at love, but you lost me at the world. Why would anyone want to join this family? The love sounds great, but then the hatred of the entire world? I don't know. Why would I want to do that? Hey, listen, aside from the incomparable love of God, how about, and this is the third point, how about the then? The then. The love... The world, and now the then. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. The as yet rings out like a prophecy of eternity. As yet. Now, as yet. For those who believe... That after this life we just slip into oblivion, soul sleep, or we just kind of disappear into the vast vagueness. John says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Now, we are children of God. What is he getting at? Look back at chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise which He Himself, that is Jesus, made to us eternal life. Why would I want to be a part of the family of God? Why would I want to be a child of God? Listen, little children, this is the only family that will last forever. This is the only family that continues on. The only family that will be there in the then. Skip over to chapter 5 and look at verse 11. 1 John 5.11 And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And that life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. John says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The then, eternal life, because of the love of God and beyond the world, the then. This is the rest of our focus this morning. The then. He says there in verse 2 again, Beloved, now we are children of God. Now, at this moment, at this juncture in eternity, right now, today, we are children of God. Guess what? Think about this with me. We won't be then. Now we are children. We won't be then. We are children now. That's who we are. We won't be then. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we won't belong to Him. We will always be children of God in terms of belonging to His family. My son Corey, 28 years old, is still my boy. Hannah, as I mentioned last week, she's 26. She's still my little girl. My son Hayden is 21. He's still my boy. Anna Marie is 20 and trucking around Ghana right now with Storm on that mission trip. She's still my little daughter. They will always be my children. Always. Just in the same way that I'm still, which is weird to me, I'm still a child of my mom and dad. My brother and I are going down there in October to visit mom and dad and hang out with them. And it's so interesting when you do that, how everybody slides back into those old family roles. I'm the idiot kid, you know. The one who's always cutting up and joking and making, you know. We all just kind of slide in. I'm still, I will always be one of my parents' two kids. And I am turning 54. You'll always be a child of God in terms of belonging, but, but understand, children, by nature, we must grow up. We are being changed. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13.11, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I didn't think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. What do we see? Children. But then, face to face, what do we see? Jesus. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. For now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 14.20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet, in evil be infants... But in your thinking, be mature. This is one of the cool dynamics of following Jesus Christ. Is that you're a child of God. And you are maturing in Christ. The child who's growing up but maintains and always has the heart of a child. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Paul also writes in Ephesians 4.13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, that, that koinonia that John's so into, that we've been talking about, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're growing up. It has not appeared as yet what we will be then. Now we are children. What are we going to be? What are we going to be when we grow up? 
What child knows, you know, exactly what his or her adult life is going to be? I was going to be a detective. I seriously, there was a time there, I think I was in the sixth grade when I thought about changing my name to Sherlock. I was a child. You can read it. It's actually there in my sixth grade autobiographical report. I'm going to be a detective or a starting guard for the L.A. Lakers, depending on how things go. Then Kobe Bryant came along and totally blew that out of the water for me. I don't appreciate that at all. We haven't seen, as yet, what we will be. So what are we going to be? There are some hints. I mean, there are a few things that the Word tells us about the then. For one, we will be different than we are now. We will be glorified. We will be raised eternal. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So we're going to be changed. Something new. Jesus said, and I kind of like this one, we will be like angels. You know, sometimes you'll call a child, oh, she's such a little angel. But you normally do that with your tongue firmly embedded in your cheek. She's such a little angel. Hey, we will be like angels. Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 36, they cannot die anymore, people in the resurrection, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So we'll be like angels. We'll be glorified. We'll be in these new bodies. We will be, by the way, this is cool, we will be judges over the angels. I like that one. For all the times my guardian angel missed it, and I was in the emergency room, I'm judging that baby. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, Do you not know that we will judge angels? And then he adds this caveat, How much more the matters of this life? If we're going to discern and we're going to rightly judge angels, let's rightly judge things as children of God right now. The Bible says we will be inheritors of an inheritance that right now is held in trust. We will receive that inheritance. Right now we have an inheritance, but we don't have it, you know. Not until we come of age in Jesus. Because now we are children. But the inheritance is there. We will become inheritors. Paul says, Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? So, these are good things. Some hints at what we will be then. We will be rulers and priests in His kingdom. As Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and 5, verse 10, and 20, verse 6, all declare He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But here's the thing. For all the study you can do in the Scriptures about what we will be like, about the as yet, about the then, Here's the thing. In all honesty, we can only imagine what it will be like. We can only imagine. In fact, a lot of what we know about the then comes from, well, photo negatives, really, of what it's like now. What it will be then. There will be no more night. We understand night now, so we know that there's not going to be that then. There will be no more sea. 
which bums out some surfers among us. There will be no sunlight, you see, because God Himself is the light. There will be no temple. You see, because God and the Lamb are the temple, Revelation tells us, there will be no death, no Hades, no devil, no curse. And listen to this. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first order of things hath passed away. Behold, He who sits on the throne said, I am making all things new. He said, Right. For these words are faithful and true. The then. Things that will not be, which currently are. The then. I like how Alexander McLaren puts this one. He he says, the white mountains keep their secret well. Not until we have passed through the black rocks that make the throat of the pass on the summit. Shall we see the broad shining plains beyond the hills? Sounds like he's reading The Hobbit. Or perhaps Anne of Green Gables, one of the two books. But the description of something unseen, something unknown, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But kids, here is the glorious guarantee of His coming. Verse 2 continues, We know that when He appears... We will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. You know who had a right to pen those words? John did. Because if our history is correct, John had seen Jesus. Not prior to the cross, but after the cross in His resurrection. And not just during those 40 days of His resurrection, but if our understanding is correct, John had already written the revelation of Jesus Christ before he wrote 1 John. Which means he had seen Jesus. John knew what he was talking about. John says that seeing Jesus, it changes you. Just seeing Him affects you, alters you like nothing else. We see Him. And that changes who we are. We will be like Him. Now we are children. But then, when we see Him, chapter 2, verse 28, look up a little bit above the verses we're at. Now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. We can practice righteousness now. We can try to be good now. But guess what? Then, when we see Him, we will be like Him. That is, we will be righteous. We will be good. Seeing Jesus... Beholding Christ. That's one of the things I ponder from time to time. That's something I can, I can only imagine. The moment 
of seeing Jesus. And I do believe in that moment when He calls us to meet Him in the clouds, everything else will fall away. Not just the earth behind us. Not just the universe. Every other person. Every other focus. Anything else that might distract. I guarantee you, you may have ADHD here on earth as a little child. But when you see Him in the air, when you meet the Lord, you're not going to be going, Squirrel! (laughs) You will not be able to take your eyes off of Him. Beholding Jesus Christ. It means in the beholding, we suddenly become Christ-like. Christ-like. Just as the love of God makes us His children, so the appearing of Christ makes us like Jesus. Remember what He said? Matthew 10.25 It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. It's enough for the slave that he become like his master. And I fully believe that seeing Him just as He is, is going to do something to us. Something more than amazement. Something more than wonder. It's going to do something to us and in us. And it may be the satisfaction of our deepest faith. It may be the gratification of our innermost desires. It may be the perfecting of the good work that He began in us. In that moment it all comes together. But we will be like Him, John writes, because we will see Him just as He is. He's going to do something to you. Now, with God's Word, even the loftiest revelations, as we've seen here, the revelation of His love, what it really means, what it really does, the revelation of seeing Jesus revealed, what that really is, what what that will really do to us. But even for these lofty revelations, and sometimes even speculations that we're drawn into, there is always in the Bible the most down-to-earth practicality, and John hits it in verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Now the translators add the word fixed, but it's everyone who has this hope on Him. Why do they add fixed? Because that's the point. That your hope is based in, on, and upon the person of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And when you have that kind of hope, when your hope is on Him and on His appearing... John says, just that will purify you. It's kind of what John's doing in this entire passage. Is he's talking to the saints and he's talking to the little children. And he's saying, look, you can be practicing righteousness and being purified. Be pure in this world. Be holy in this world. This is a legitimate thing. You can be purified. The word purify is hognizo, and it's used seven times in the New Testament. And this is important. Seven times hognizo. In John chapter 11, verse 25, in Acts 21 and twice in Acts 24, hognizo is used to talk about ceremonial cleansing, as in for the temple. You get ceremonially cleansed as you go into the temple, or things done in the temple that bring about ceremonial cleansing. Purification. The Jewish mind got that. Purification is cleansing. It allows me to have clean hands and a clean heart so I can come before God. Well, Yaakov and Peter, they take this word and they use it more specifically 
James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Jews understood that. Purify your hearts. Hognizo your hearts. You double-minded. And then Peter said in 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's interesting. Those two times in the New Testament when it's not talking about ceremonial cleansing in the temple, James and Peter together talk about purifying heart and soul. Heart and mind. That you might be fully pure. Where the heart is pure and the mind is pure, guess what the body is? Pure. Because the body is going to do what the mind tells it to do. And the mind that listens to the spirit. If the spirit is pure and the mind is pure, the body will be pure. And so John is talking about here, when he says everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure, he's talking about moral purity. He's talking about righteousness. That's what the hope... Listen, seeing Jesus changes everything. The hope of seeing Jesus purifies you morally. It causes you, regardless of what society says, regardless of how culture changes or flows or accepts this, that, or the other, the hope of seeing Jesus keeps you morally pure. As we said last week, how shall a young man secure or purify his heart by keeping it according to His Word. What John adds in there, according to His Word, yes, keep the Word, but hope for Jesus. Keep looking to the coming of Jesus. Keep expecting the appearing of Jesus because that will purify you. And that is like the child being babysat. It's 9 o'clock. It's been a rough evening. And mom and dad are going to be home at 9 o'clock. What is the child doing? Everything he or she can to make things right before mom and dad walk in the door. Because that expectation purifies the behavior. I truly think about this. I really do. There are times I'm going through the week and I have a choice. I have a choice to sin. I have a choice to do something or enter some location or be in some behavior that my moral nature stops me, my conscience, God-given, says, not a good idea, Rick. You know where that's going to lead. And in that moment, if I remember Jesus could be there in that moment, I don't want to be found in that moment. You see what I'm saying? It's morally purifying. And brothers and sisters, little children, we will see Him. He is coming. When? Next week? I don't know. What if it's today, right when you're in the middle of an argument with your spouse? I mean, that's the question that sometimes rises up in my brain. Is this how I want to be found? Do I want to be found by Him? Arguing? Do I want to be found by Him? Speeding? And thumbing my nose at the officer on the way by? Now, I don't do that. Tempted. And yet, is that how I want to be found? And we could get a whole lot more serious than I'm being right now. Do you want to be found in that place, in that position when Jesus comes? He who has this hope, the hope of Jesus and His appearing, and that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will behold Him, we will see Him as He is. That hope, if you have that hope, it's going to purify you. And i got to add this. 
It's not just the children who will see Him. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. If I didn't know Jesus, that would be a thought that terrifies Because I'm a child of God, I thank God it is a hope that purifies. A thought that terrifies or a hope that purifies, whatever the case, knowing that Jesus is coming must not leave us the same as when we came in. It changes us. It must change us. As Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, chapter 1, verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because, he says, of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You are changed, Paul says, because of the hope. 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. How, Peter? Uh, spotless and blameless. Do you know that A.A. Milne was never fond of children? I mean, I hate to burst some bubbles out there. But this author, this creator, if you will, of Winnie the Pooh didn't like kids. He barely had a relationship with his own son, Christopher Robin. It was hard for him. He was a solitary man, A.A. Milne. He was a perfectionist. He was a novelist. He wanted to be known as a literary giant. He was known for Winnie the Pooh. Can you imagine what that would be like? He died bitter and estranged from his only son, Christopher Robin. For his part, Christopher Robin remained ambivalent toward his father's books and legacy. If you saw the previous movie, Goodbye, Christopher Robin, I think is what it was called. That's a bummer of a movie. Because it's, it's sad. He, he, in the movie it says he never took a dollar from any of his father's works. That's actually not true. He did, ultimately, because he had to pay some bills. Christopher Robin quoted in a 1998 Telegraph UK article. He died in 96, but the article came out two years later, after his death. And this is what he said. It's been something of a love-hate relationship down the years, but it's all right now. You know, it gives a a certain poignancy to the conclusion of the last two lines of the House at Pooh Corner. Let me read those to you. I know we're studying Bible and House at Pooh Corner seems rather trivial, but listen to this for a second. It says, So they went off together. But wherever they go and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. And when you know the history and the story, that is a bittersweet conclusion of a childhood fantasy. But we know the sweet, eternal truth. See, this is where the Word of God is not a fantasy. It's not child's play. We know by the Word, God's love now. And Jesus' return then changes us forever. Now, We are children. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs 
with Christ. So the question remains this morning, kids, what will you be? What are you going to be? When He appears, how will you see Him? And are you ready for that? Have you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you believed on His name? If not, He made it so simple a child can understand it. If not, you can believe on Him right now. You can receive Him as your Lord right now. And if you haven't, I hope you do. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, I come to You as a child. So many aspects of that that we could consider and talk about. Because Lord, as a child, I often don't know what I'm doing or where I'm going. And I need my Father to point the way and to direct me. I thank You that You have always done that. And I thank You that You are here even now pointing the way and directing us. Even to Your kingdom, Lord, You don't open the gates of the kingdom and then disappear to let us maybe stumble upon it. You're the Father who runs to us. I pray, Holy Father, You'll run to us right now. And You will look into the hearts of everybody here. And see, Father, if we are children or not. And if children, bring, Lord, the hope that purifies. And Lord, if not children, draw us, invite us, give us a sense of the peace that waits for us to simply believe in Jesus. As we pray, I offer you this opportunity right now. If you want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, would you simply pray after me? Father, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And so I come to You without a whole lot of explanation or understanding. And I come to You just saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that Jesus, You went to the cross and You died. And You took my place. And You took my sin. I believe that You rose from the dead. And I believe that You are coming again. And I just want to live with that hope. Father, make me Your child this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and worship together. If you prayed that prayer, I invite you to come forward and talk to one of us. Spend a few minutes understanding just a little bit more. If you've prayed that prayer before and you've never been baptized, come forward and let's do that today to be ready for Him when He returns, which can be any time. If there's anything else going on in your life, you know if you need to be prayed for, please come. Let's stand and sing together.